Welcome to a special mini-series of Innovate at Open, the podcast that explores open source through the lenses of distributed collaboration, collective invention, and technology creation. In this mini-series, we'll consider the question of, was open source inevitable, and what that tells us about software's past and future. I'm your host, Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist at Red Hat. Episode 3, Operating Systems for a Horizontal Stack. In the last episode, we started to examine some of the counterfactuals, the what-might-have-beens associated with open source. Did the Unix operating system, from which so much of the history of open source in our timeline derived, have to happen? How important was Richard Stallman, the Free Software Foundation, which made free software, which many would later call open source, a movement that went beyond collegial academic sharing? What other changes around licensing and copyright law could have altered open source's trajectory? In this penultimate episode of the series, we'll play out the great Linux versus Windows rivalry of the 1990s and 2000s. We'll first consider what might have happened had Linus Torvalds decided to take up ice sculpture instead of writing Linux. Then we'll take a look at whether Microsoft could reasonably have played its hand differently to parlay its dominance on the desktop, together with Windows NT, into a position that stopped or co-opted open source. In our timeline, a Finnish university student by the name of Linus Torvalds made a 1991 post to a Usenet news group that he was starting to work on a free operating system in the Unix mold as a hobby. This OS would come to be called Linux and be licensed under Stallman's GPL. It made use of Richard Stallman's GNU components, including his C compiler, which was necessary to build the system from source code. For a kernel, he didn't start from scratch. Rather, he worked on and was inspired by Minix, a version of Unix initially created by Andrew Tannenbaum, licensed only for educational purposes at the time. But what if Linus Torvalds had decided that computer science wasn't his thing and decided to take up ice sculpture instead? That was the question I posed to longtime technology journalist and CBS interactive contributing editor Stephen Vaughn Nichols and former Sun engineer and now co-founder of Oxide Computer Brian Cantrell. The whole debate is lively and informative. It's published on this podcast, and the link will be in the show notes. But here's how they kick things off. So uh, Linus has decided that he's going to take his chisel off into the, the far north and start carving ice sculptures. Fine. What happens from here as far as the operating system world is concerned? That's a darn good question. I think that the internet uh, takes a different path and it's going to be based primarily on the BSD, Unixus, and SunOS. And yes, I know there's some argument that really aren't you talking about all the same thing, but we won't get into that right now. Uh, I think it's going to be a much slower process, uh, the internet that is getting off the ground. I think that it's possible that here we are in 2020, 
uh, almost 30 years later, and we would be running, God help us, Windows 2020 as our <laughs> both our desktop and our server operating system. Open source is stalled out. Uh, doesn't exist at all, really. We still have free software, thanks to RMS. But I don't see that ever really engaging in the business world. Um, same thing with the BSDs and the BSD license. They're around. They're important, probably on the Internet as a server operating system. But uh, it's a very different and very proprietary world. And I think open source in general is a concept that really never catches fire. Very different world indeed. I think that's nuts. <laughs> I think that is absolutely insane. I, now I, I so all right. Let's take that from the beginning. First of all, um, if you know Torvalds is no, it doesn't do uh, Linux, the rise of the internet is unaffected. Let's just get that out there. The rise of the internet, which happens really in starting in '93, certainly the rise of of HTML is far more important to the rise of the internet than Linux, which had logical equivalents in other systems. Um, and having been a, I graduated um, in, from university in 1996, so this is definitely bullseye for me. And the the rise of the internet through 93, 94, 95, the rise of Java in, in 95 is very important. Um, and then the internet explodes in, in 95, 96, 97. Yahoo, I didn't even, did not run on Linux, ran on FreeBSD. Um, the, it was really the, it was the workstation companies that, uh, exploded. And in particular, the, and part of the reason I went to work for Sun Microsystems in 1996 is the, the other workstation, historic Unix workstation companies, had uh, or server companies uh, had all decided that Windows was the future, and it was only Sun that had decided that uh, to stand by Unix. Uh, and it was um, Unix that exploded with the internet. Uh, but it is the it, the internet was going to explode. I mean, that was it had I think nothing to do really with with Linux. I, I think that um, what ended up happening over the the, the kind of the late 90s and into the 2000s, Linux does not become really truly deeply relevant until it the, the microprocessor that it was welded to, the x86, begins to surpass the, the risk microprocessors. And if you want the, the fastest microprocessor on the planet in 2000, 2001, 2002, that is increasingly an x86-based part and not a power-based part or Spark-based part or MIPS-based part or PA-RISC-based part. With the rise of, and then I think that another very important, in terms of the rise of Linux, one of the things that's very important is the commoditization of the x86 and the bust, frankly. Um, so the, the bust from 2000, 2001, 2002, by the time you hit 2002, 2003, we're in a, a nuclear winter um, of an economic bust. And so it is the economics of x86 and the de facto Unix on x86, which was Linux. So I've got a totally different read of history. Um, I think if it's not Linux, it would have been one of the BSD variants, would have been the de facto Unix on x86. But it is the rise of the Internet, and it is the, the rise of SMP to, to a lesser degree, uh, and then the, um, the rise of commodity microprocessors um, as highest-performing microprocessors that um, – Linux grabbed a ride and drafted on those 
economic megatrends, but did not really contribute to them. This captures the fundamental debate nicely. On the one hand, the BSDs, while popular in internet infrastructure, hadn't really taken off, at least for some definitions have taken off. Microsoft, a topic we'll return to in a bit, was poised to eclipse all in the minds of many. In this view, there really was a critical catalyst like Linux needed in the mid to late 1990s to produce the open source world we see today. On the other hand, there was nothing especially new and innovative about Linux. It was the product of the great economic and technological forces which we heard about at the very beginning of this podcast series. If Linux hadn't existed, the collective we would have had to invent it. The BSD question is an interesting and possibly pivotal one. BSD's ultimate, at least relative, failure is also one that doesn't lend itself to a clear historical understanding, even with the benefit of hindsight. Lingering concerns stemming from the AT&T lawsuit we covered in the first episode of this series may have been one factor. Brian Prophet of Red Hat's Open Source Program Office identifies the lack of a strong developer community and fragmentation as another possible factor. Certainly, these were serious issues in the proprietary Unix world and could arguably have played out in a similar vein with open source Unixes. I think a few things held BSD back. There never seemed to be a lot of developer interest in it. There wasn't a lot of of interest in BSD from either the user side and certainly not from the developer side. And we could go, and I'm not gonna, but we could go into political arguments about why it was held back, that there are personalities in the community that sort of held BSD back. So I'm a big believer in conservation of energy. Uh, I have a background in physics. And so I'm kind of a believer in there's only so much developer energy or attention going around. And something's going to take that energy and and take most of the energy and, and use it. And I think that in that case, it was Linux. And there just wasn't enough developer interest or passion around BSD to give, to let that get started. And we almost had that problem with all the different and disparate Linux distributions where developers didn't know which one to pick. And we were very lucky in that regard that regardless of all the fantastic distributions that are out there, really developer interest has settled on one of three distros, either the Red Hat universe, the Debian universe, or the SUSE universe. A little bit Slackware, but you know that's that's kind of uh, faded a little bit. So I, I would say we got lucky because if that had continued, and there all that developer energy and attention had been spread across all of the mini distros at the developer level, I think we would have had a real problem with getting anything done. But in spite of the problems with the BSDs, they were being adopted, and there was certainly an assumption in at least some quarters that adoption would continue. Brian Cantrell again. 
the BSDs were were available for x86, and especially once the lawsuit was cleared in the early 90s. I and I can just tell you that the feeling among my peers in the the late 90s was well, if we weren't working on, if we had to use x86, and we didn't, and at the time we had the uh, the operating system Solaris was ported x86, right. but the assumption would be that it would just be free BSD, um, and I think that that's the assumption on the companies that were building things on x86 as well in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I mean, ultimately, Linux clearly does surpass the, the BSDs in terms of adoption. Um, and I think that there's, there's some interesting questions in terms of why Linux versus the BSDs. But again, I, don't, I think in both cases, those, they're the, the tail on the dog, the dog being the much larger economic trends. And... Even if the BSDs in their then current organizational form were flawed, even perhaps fatally so from the perspective of widespread adoption, we might have seen adaptation in the absence of Linus Torvalds and Linux. Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN. I, I think the market needed the type of thing we got from Linux. You know, I, I do think that there was need for somebody who is willing to be the benevolent dictator and sort of guard and protect the kernel and, you know, and, and be that, that sort of, you know, very, you know, and, and he gets a lot of, a lot of criticism for this too, because it's a very hard job and he doesn't always do it in a politic way or in a way that rubs people the right way. And, and there, there are concerns and challenges for that. At the same time, you know, during sort of this run up where we had had to make a whole bunch of of technical decisions and yes, no's, that's we had somebody doing that. I don't think that's unique to Linux. Linus, he's done a good job of it, but there's mistakes he made. There's design decisions that were made. There were, you know, compromises or things that, you know, there's always balances. So I think that there's a market force that would have drove us to this. And the market picked, you know, somebody who was able to actually shepherd the the project well. There's a ton of Linux distros. There's no shortage of would-be kings in this case. And that's the beauty of how open source worked. It's not because there was one inevitable uh, truth. What it what it turned out was we had enough people running that the you know the best of that group could surface. And best is is strictly an, you know, an objective term because there's something Linux distros that are still better for some things and others that are better for others. We, we got sort of a good middle ground and then we had a, you know, a couple of companies rush in behind it to prove it commercially. It wouldn't have happened without Red Hat either. Perhaps if Linux hadn't existed in the person and form we know it today, the market would have naturally led to something similar coming into existence. Perhaps from the BSDs, perhaps from an earlier open Solaris, though that seems unlikely, or perhaps from another university student building off Minix. In the last segment, we heard Stephen Von Nichols ponder whether in the absence of Linux, might not Microsoft Windows have played a much larger role on the server. This series hasn't talked much about Microsoft so far, which would probably greatly puzzle a time traveler from the mid to late 90s, given Microsoft's dominance at the time. We didn't even cover Microsoft in the history segment in episode one. Let's remedy that before getting to the question at hand. 
In the mid-1980s, Microsoft decided to build on its desktop PC domination to similarly dominate servers. Microsoft's initial foray into a next-generation operating system ended poorly. IBM and Microsoft signed a joint development agreement in August 1985 to develop what would later become OS 2. However, especially after Windows 3.0 became a success on desktop PCs in 1990, the two companies increasingly couldn't square their technical and cultural differences. As a result, Microsoft had started to work in parallel on a re-architected version of Windows. CEO Bill Gates hired Dave Cutler in 1988. Cutler had led the team that created the VMS operating system for digital equipment's VAX computer line, along with other digital operating systems. Cutler had a low opinion of OS 2. By some accounts, he also had a low opinion of Unix as something designed by a committee of PhDs. In any case, Cutler undertook the design of a new operating system that would be named Windows NT upon its release in 1983. IBM continued to work on OS 2 by itself, but failed to attract application developers, was never a success, and was eventually discontinued. This was an early-on example of the growing importance of developers and developer mindshare, a trend that Bill Gates and Microsoft had long recognized and played to considerable advantage. Windows NT on Intel was a breakout product. Indeed, Microsoft and Intel became so successful and dominant that the Wintel term was increasingly used to refer to the most dominant type of system in the entire industry. By the mid-1990s, Unix was in decline, as were other operating systems, such as Nobel's Netware. Windows NT was mostly capturing share from Unix and smaller servers, but many thought they saw a future in which Wintel was everywhere. Unix system vendors, with the notable exception of Sun Microsystems under combative CEO Scott McNeely, started to play side bets on Windows NT. There was a sense of inevitability in many circles. Unix might still have been the operating system of choice for large systems with many processors. Windows NT was initially optimized for smaller systems. But it was easy to see that Windows NT was fully capable of scaling up. It had been architected by Cutler to be able to serve as a Unix replacement. Once it got there, it was going to be very difficult not to rally around something which had become an industry standard, just as Intel's x86 processor line had. Products selling in large volume have lower unit costs and find it far easier to establish partnerships and integrations up and down the new stack with its horizontal layers, rather than the vertical silos of the mini-computer and proprietary Unix vendors. So what happened? Surely, almost an entire industry couldn't have been wrong. Brian Cantrell again. Yeah, the, the, the industry was wrong. And the industry's been wrong, like, many times before. So this, is not, this should not be earth-shattering or a newsflash. But the, the companies that embraced Windows had very serious, deep structural problems. And they, uh, it, it was an act of capitulation and it was not forward thinking at all. Um, it, they, they were um, from all of them, right? And you can, 
they from from DEC, from HP, from um, from IBM, and then I mean it, it, probably the most pathetic one is SGI, just because SGI absolutely should have been an independent thinker, but felt that it needed to forego its future to Windows. I mean, you, you can kind of get to some of that fear in the the Larry McVoy's Sourceware paper um, from 1993 captures some of that fear as it existed in the industry. But there was just, you know, Microsoft was, they were a monopolistic competitor. They were vicious. Um, they had a fearsome reputation. And it just, they had certainly conquered all personal computer operating systems. And it just felt to uh, a bunch in the industry that they were going to conquer everything. I felt at the time, and I very much voted with my career because I felt strongly that that was not the case as a 22-year-old, and I went to go work for the only computer company that, that uh, agreed with my point of view, and what I saw was the, the rise of symmetric multiprocessing and, then, and the rise of the internet as something that, that Microsoft didn't get at all. And I just didn't see them participating in that. Um, and I saw that the, not just the Unix-based systems, but other operating systems were, um, were in a much better position. In this view, the inevitability of Microsoft was a shared industry delusion that was never going to come to pass. Not because an almost unimaginably different Microsoft couldn't have played a different hand, but because the Microsoft under Bill Gates really didn't get the internet and internet standards until very late in the game. The Microsoft subsequently led by Steve Ballmer saw Linux and open source as a quote-unquote cancer to be wiped out. But maybe Microsoft could have adapted. Brian Profit again. I really think that if Microsoft had played the long game better back uh, late nineties and and then and then I would say even all all the way up through the like the two thousands um, before you know maybe the late two thousands when they kind of got uh, their heads on right but they they were too aggressive they you know and we all know the personality stories about Steve Ballmer and you know Craig Mundy and and other people in Microsoft who were hyper-aggressive about Linux. I think that hyper-aggressiveness didn't help them because it certainly it certainly polarized any business. So now, now it became, there's no way we're going to be able to, you know, we're either going to use Linux or we're not going to use Linux. So you have you had a lot of shops back in those days, IT shops that were basically like, okay, we're all in for Windows or we're all in for, you know, Linux. And there, there wasn't a lot of back and forth uh, in between. And I'm referring to mostly the software or the server platforms because on the desktop, really, I'm sorry, Linux never really was able to take off. I think that if Microsoft had been more softer around that and if they figured out shared source earlier and not before they went out and did very aggressive negative campaigning against Linux and open source. I think that we would have had a, a far more different landscape because Microsoft has got it pretty right now because you look at polls that come out around who is the leader in open source and who has the most open source contributions. And there are a lot of marketing surveys 
independently that are saying, you know, hey, Microsoft's doing very well on that. And and old people like me are looking at that and going, what the actual heck is going on with that? Because now they finally figured it out. And and I think they're being sincere with their open source. I don't think it's a marketing game anymore. But I think if they figured this out about 10 or 15 years ago and and not been so harsh against Linux, I think we'd be an open source. I think we'd be looking at a far more different landscape at this point. I think that a lot of open source development would be centered around Windows-based platforms, not so much Linux. I think the air, again, going back to conservation of energy, I think a lot of the air in the room would have been sucked out and been you know, drawn more towards Microsoft land. Because if I'm a developer and I'm looking at uh, you know, server distribution and desktop distribution. If Microsoft has all of the desktops or most of them, and if they have hypothetically more of the server space, me as a developer, it's going to be make more sense for me to go over and develop on Windows, especially if they're doing some kind of open source that agrees with my personal politics or whatever. Current Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella has demonstrated that Microsoft, the company, had the ability to course correct with respect to open source under the right leadership. It had and has critical assets, not least of which is its historical strength in connecting to developers. Balanced against that, it's perhaps hard to see that happening much earlier than it did, absent a generational changing of the guard. In our final episode four, we'll consider the following question. Even if we stipulate that Linux and open source were inevitable at some level, could they have just fallen into niches as some industry analysts were predicting in the late 1990s? Successful at some level, but not really commercially important. We'll then close by summing up what we think we've learned and think about what insights we might extract about where open source is today and where it is going. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovate at Open. For future episodes, subscribe to Innovate at Open on your favorite podcast app. You can also go bitmason, B-I-T-M-A-S-O-N, blogspot.com for show notes, blogs, and a full archive of episodes and more. Thank you for listening. This is Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist at Red Hat.